today a bit different. I have a video um, which will, it's about nine minutes long, about the book of Jonah. Um, I really like it. It's by a group called The Bible Project, which I recommend you look up online. It's really interesting and good material there. It's called The Bible Project. And we'll stop the video from time to time and discuss what we think is going on and why. Got a few questions, and then we'll wrap it up at the end and take from you. That's what we're going to be, be doing today. So, the book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet, rather it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all his territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to note that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagan's humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of. And the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire, which is stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Uh, why does Jonah run? What do you think? Why does he run away? Why does he run in the opposite direction? Afraid. He's afraid. He is rebelling. You know, it's kind of why, isn't it? Yes? He did not want to do what God told him to do. That's right. Yes? I mean, aren't the Levites the ones that like kill their babies and skin people? They weren't exactly like a friendly bunch, like going to Finland on holiday. <laughs> no, exactly. They were a, a very aggressive and nasty civilization in that aggressive sense. You thought they were beyond sacred. You could say, kind of, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. no chance of them 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no chance, so why, why bother? And I think fear might be part in it. Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God. He boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship and then falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet. Well, ironically, the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat. And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right? by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first, until you realize why, the, why does Jonah tell the soldiers to kill him? What do you think? What's going on there? Why does he tell them? Kill me! Chuck me on the board! Because creation is going to get him to the Okay, yeah. Because he's thinking that if he jumps overboard, the soul will stop and then he just find out what Maybe. Maybe he's hoping it'll just all die down and he'll be okay and get back on the boat. Yes, sir. Because he... He wants to... See his own God. See his own God, right. Maybe he wants to go see God. Yeah. Okay. Another hand somewhere. Could it have been self-pity? Perhaps self-pity. I'm depressed. God's against me. Let's end it all now. What's the point? What's the point? Mm -hmm. Still trying to run away. Still running away. God's chasing him onto the ship, and he's like, "No, oh, God's got me here. Let me run away some more." Yeah. Go on. Does he start to realise he might be the cause? Maybe. He therefore may be part of the solution. Not the right way. Yeah, yeah. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat. And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right? by throwing me overboard. Which kind of seems noble at first, until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death, but in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death Comes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him and promises that he will. Two questions. What do you think it felt like to be in the stomach of the of the fish? What do you think, guys? Scary, scary down there. What else do you think, Nathan? Cramped, warm, and wet. Smelly. Smelly, for sure. Pretty disgusting, right? Dark. 
And he just said in the, in the video, he didn't really say sorry. He kind of prays a prayer of repentance, but he doesn't really say sorry to God for what he's done. Now, why? Why? He's, he's, been, he's been swallowed by this fish. The most miraculous thing has occurred. He still doesn't say sorry, yes? <coughs> Maybe he doesn't see that as a particularly positive thing. Maybe not. Yeah, Becky. Maybe he's a bit like us. And once you say the word sorry, you're making a promise that you're going to try your hardest not to do that again. And then you might have to change something. <laughs> right. Something I never struggle with. Other members of <laughs> yes. Okay, maybe. We can talk about that later. Okay, so let's move on. Let's carry on. Obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite common. The whales honest Jonah that So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh. And Jonah was told that Nineveh was a gigantic city it would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in. Here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Okay, what is strange about that message? Think about it, look at it, and ask yourself, what is unusual or odd or strange about that message? There's no context or explanation. There's no context. It's just a few words. Forty. Forty is okay. Yeah, yeah. Forty days. Forty days. Okay, yeah. So that would be like in Moses' time, Jesus' time, all these forty days in the desert, and then okay. there is a change. The number is significant symbolically, yeah. Forty more, more, from more. Forty more days. More from when? Okay. Deadline not necessarily exactly spelled yeah. out. Yeah, Leon. Okay, they're not told. Yeah. It's, it's just a warning, isn't it? There's not much more going on. Yeah, Patricia? The word overturned is important. We'll see more about that in a minute. So, well, that's well spotted. Yeah. Anything else? We'll go on. Let's press on. It's five words. The sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon than the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. 
And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah is fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that he would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation. He prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might happen happen, you know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. Why does God provide him with the shade? Why does he make the vine grow? What do you think God's doing there? What's God's purpose in that, Alice? To make Jonah happy? It certainly does make him much more comfortable, isn't it? Help him to realize that he did some things wrong. Okay? Thank you. Good. Anybody else? Not called Alice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the way it's going to be. Dawn? Just to adopt her. Huh? That's when Donna wiped the Yes, Alice. Um, 
even where it ends in the books that the children, I mean, that's mm. when I've read more recently. Yeah, most children's stories do end there. You're right. And that's, and that's probably, I'll be frank, when the times I've read Jonah in the last five years have been through children's stories. So this whole slant is really, I mean, the, the truth of what the Bible is really interesting. Yeah. <coughs> that's yeah. helpful. Yes, Becky, what do you take from um, I think the fact that I know that when I've gone through periods of feeling spiritually like I'm not really on fire and maybe even angry with God at times, that that's when I'm unusable at that point. Uh, uh, and yes. what strikes me is that Jonah is angry and running away from God and doing all of these things and yet the whole way through he's still being used by God. And God is still showing him compassion and love, which is the opposite to how my human right. can often operate. Yes, yes. And my very humanistic view of God. You know. um, so yeah, I think that's us. Thank you. Super, Dad. Me, the lesson I learned, way before Becky says, well, I'm... I'm not in the right place. God's, God's voice never gets any angrier. Because if you're angry, you get louder. Mm -hmm. And the only person who does badly out of it is me. It's me who suffers. Like Jonah was the one who suffers. It's me who suffers when I know that I need to change and I'm just still angry with God. And, you know. And, yeah, and also, a little lesson I learned from it is that. God ultimately is the person that judges people. He's the judge, not not us. And I think we can be angry with the world, angry mm. with evil people. Um, think about even recently in the news about you know the bodies. We can think condemn evil because mm. we don't deserve, but actually God views those people as people He has lost and He He, he loves. Uh, they've lost their way. Wherever evil that they have done, they have lost their way. And to God, that loss is just as much as in losing me. Right. So, so often we, we can judge each other and compare ourselves to other people. We see more evil than us. Appear to be from, to be. from our perspective. We don't know <laughs> their lives, we don't know what they've been through, uh, what led them to that point. But from God's perspective, there's no favoritism. And only He has an accurate picture. Yeah. He's the only one. Simon. Yeah, I like the point at the end, because I think that's really us as Christians who um, definitely make me you know, not so shy away from uh, uh, don't want to suffer for Christ, you know, don't want to reach out to people, you know. Yeah. So, I like the way that he used that phrase at the end. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? I mean, really. So, to do this properly, and I, I do this cautiously, I suggest you might need to bring to mind someone you would consider to be an enemy. That's what you've got to do, right? Not just this theoretical, some enemy out there. But what you've got to think about is someone who is implacably opposed to you. Someone who won't agree with you, actively opposes you, who hurts you, that's, that's 
when you've got that person in mind, then that's the person to ask that question about. Are you okay with God loving that person? Really? Because the thing that challenges me about it is, if God loves that person, I must love that person. Because if I can't love the way God loves, how can I claim to be a Christian? And, and love the heart of God. It doesn't mean I will love that person perfectly. I'm going to struggle. But God's with me in the struggle, right? And we see that in Jesus. See, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, love your enemy and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect or complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're, we're called to love our enemies. Now, we're going to take some bread and wine in a moment. And that's how we call our communion. And one of the reasons we do this is to remind us the fact that Jesus on the cross is showing us that he loved us while we were still his enemies. And that gives us the inspiration to go and do likewise for others, to be a reformed Jonah. We don't know if Jonah ever really got it. We don't. We hope he did, but we really don't know. But we pray that we'll get it, so that we can love others the way that God loves them. Let's pray together, and then we'll take some Father, we want to thank you that you don't hold a grudge against anybody. We want to thank you that you're not limited in the human way we are in our love for those who hurt us. We thank you that you have a perfect and enduring and patient love for us and for all people who have ever walked on this planet. Father, we pray you'll help us to love like Jesus did and to not fall into the self-pity trap of Jonah or the self-righteousness trap or, or the trap of thinking we know better than you. Help us, Father, to trust you and help us to have the strength, the spiritual strength, the emotional strength to love those who at least at the moment are our enemies. Thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you for preserving it in the Bible for us to reveal to us what we need to know about ourselves, how hard it is to love our enemies. But Father, we thank you for Jesus on the cross and thank you that he showed us the way, that he died for those who nailed him to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they are doing. We pray, Father, you'll give us the same heart for those around us. And we pray that, that what we do now as we take the bread and wine, we'll refresh our heart, refresh our spirit, so that we can be inspired to live like Jesus this week. We thank you for him, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pass around the room.